Well, good morning, church. If you would, please open your Bibles with me to the book of Deuteronomy this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. As we continue a series that we started several weeks ago called Never Ending, How God's Story Changes Yours. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And in turning, let me ask you this question. How many of you, Deuteronomy is your favorite book in the Bible? All right, here we go. Deuteronomy is actually an incredible book. It means something special to my family because when God gave us our oldest child, Major, we began kind of telling our family that the Lord was at work and we were going to have a baby and we came up with a name. And so we, we told grandparents, just like you do, and we were sitting there with my grandparents one day, and my grandma and grandpa, my grandpa has been a faithful deacon in a Southern Baptist church in central Oklahoma for over 45 years. And so right before we told the name, he said, wait, wait, you should name your son Deuteronomy. And so everyone kind of looked around and, Deuteronomy, yeah. I said, well, why in the world would we do that? He said, well, that way you can call him Dude. And so I said, no, Grandpa, we're not going to do that. Actually, it's his son's name, our son's name is Major. No, 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 no call, him, call him Duke. I said, Grandpa, we'll just settle this once for all. Can you even spell Deuteronomy? Maddie, why don't you call him Major? I was like, all right, here we go. Now, Deuteronomy is an amazing, amazing book. Not only is it the fifth book in the Pentateuch, it is also a book that's more aptly translated, second law, or even better in the Hebrew, these are the words of the Lord. Deuteronomy is the last days and thus last thoughts of one of God's faithful servants, Moses. And in Deuteronomy, Moses gives us the Shema, literally to hear the word of the Lord, to declare who God is, and to command us on how to live in light of who God is. And that is why faithful Jews since the 2nd century B.C. have quoted these verses that we're studying today twice a day for all of their life. Jewish boys would be required to memorize the Shema as soon as they could speak. And so when we come to Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 5, the one thing I want you to get for your walk in here and do life is this. Love God as the way of life. Love God as the way of life. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 5. And your Bible says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Moses in Deuteronomy 6 is 120 years old and about to die. He has faithfully led God's people at the Exodus. He has led them through the wilderness. And now he is going to summarize the law, the Ten Commandments, the very revealed intent of God the Father for their lives. How to live a life pleasing to the Lord. How to take your gifts and your talents and things that you love most and thus give them to God. Moses summarizes in two verses and with two commands that will radically change your life now, thousands of years removed from this text. If you will hear and love, Moses says, your life can be radically changed from the inside out. Love God as the way of life, he says. Now think about this. What's the most significant advice that you've ever been given? I mean, what is something that you heard from someone that you were like, wow, I mean, that has the potential to change my life? 
that, that has the potential to, to move me to a place that I never even thought. Uh, I had the pleasure of asking that same question to some of our church members this week. And here's what they said. What's the most significant advice you've ever been given? Number one, maintain a strong relationship with the Lord. Secondly, think before you speak. Pretty good, pretty good. Number three, trust but verify. Kind of Reagan-esque, really, right? Number four, I'll listen to this one. Your friends determine your future. That's pretty good. Fifthly, in light of this text, I was thinking of a native Oklahoman, Will Rogers, who says, never miss a good chance to be silent. I think if Moses were here, he would say, in all of my life, with all of my experiences, in all that I've seen God do in and through his people, here's what I would tell you. Love God as the way of life. Not as just one of many options. Not as just one day or two days of your week, but rather all of your life. Love God as the way of life. And he says in verse 4, Hear, hear, O Israel. It's a word here that means to listen with the intent to respond. Do you have any idea that you have in maximizing the potential and glory of God in your life? Can be not just you doing, but rather you actively listening. The fascinating thing is, is that businesses have done this for decades. I read an article this week in the Harvard Business Journal, and one of their best editors said, he believes that the key to efficiency and effectiveness in the workplace is not by just working, but rather listening. He said that 80% of all problems in the workplace are a direct result of people not effectively listening to one another. That's Moses' exact intent in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel. This is why it's one of his favorite ways to address God's people in this book. God's people love to respond to God's word. That's his point. So when was the last time you actively listened to God? He said, well, what does that look like, Pastor? One, open your Bible daily. And before you open that book, ask the Lord to open your heart and thus your mind. Ask God, God, speak to me. And then secondly, start reading his word. Grab a good cup of coffee. Grab some of the Lord's chicken at there at Chick-fil-A and get you a little biscuit. And get after it. And start reading out loud the word of God. As if God himself was speaking to you. Because he is. Then thirdly, begin to write key words down. Write down nouns. Ooh. Write down verbs. Ooh. Write down conjunctions, ooh, right? And then write down some key thoughts. Then are you ready for this? Fourthly, now respond. God, in light of this text, how am I going to respond to what you said? And then fifthly, tell somebody. You see, here's the amazing thing. Sociologists and demographers have studied our society. And what they've discovered through decades of research is that if you hear something that, man, this is mind-blowing, This is the truth I need to know. But yet you don't write it down. You don't say it out loud. You don't tell anybody about it. There's a 25% chance the next day that you even remember it. 
25%. Now, here's the crazy thing. If you write it down, it doubles. You are 50% more likely to retain it in your mind. But if you go from there and you begin to expand on that thought, if you begin to say out loud that thought, if you begin to memorize that thought, are you ready for this? And tell somebody else about it, there's an 80% chance a week later that you still know it. How much more impact can you and I have in the will of the Lord if we focus just as much on working and doing as we did even more on listening? Hear, oh Israel, come to the word of God with the intent to respond and to obey. Why? Because the Lord our God, the Lord is one, Moses tells his people. Literally, Yahweh, who is our God, Yahweh is one. You can almost feel his passion, can't you? Moses is emphasizing God's singularity in verse 4. God is the unique, incomparable God. He is the one true Lord. He's not some rock. He's not some idea. He's not some fabric of your imagination. He's Yahweh. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he reminds these people, as a way of life, you are too within your mind at the depths of who you are. You are to listen, and the God of the universe will speak to you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. No wonder. Jesus in Mark 12, verse 34, when asked of a scribe or Pharisee, an interpreter of the Old Testament, which is the greatest commandment, Jesus cites Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5, verbatim. Why? Because loving God is not just to be a part of your life. Loving God is to be the way of your life. And before you can have all of God, he must have all of you. That's Moses' point. That's Jesus' point. Every choice, all plans, any dream must be given to God. Moses' aim in the Shema is not just a confessional statement then, but an affirmation, a blessing to a lifelong commitment to God as the way of life. Choose, he's saying to your people, which way do you desire to live? One full of loving yourself and thus judgment. Or one full of loving God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might and be blessed. He affirms an Old Testament teaching found even in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name will be one. God is using today and all days to prepare you for that day. And that day will be an affirmation that God in God alone is one. Is he the one? Is he the one in your life then? Love God as the way of life. For the Lord our 
God is one. So what did this mean to God's people at this time in Deuteronomy? And what does it mean for us thousands of years later? Let me give you four thoughts on that. Are you ready? Number one, God is our God. God isn't just the God. He has the potential to be your God. God called his people in the Old Testament into a relationship with himself. He set them apart as the crowning achievement of his creation as made in his image. God chose his people, saved his people, redeemed his people, and promised to continually protect and provide for his people. Salvation was not something created by Hollywood or by philosophers, but rather by God himself. And the same God that chose and saved and redeemed and protected and provided for his people in the Old Testament desires to do the same thing with you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, the Bible says. You are set apart unto God and for his glory. The moment that you give your life to Christ, the moment that you say, my life isn't a consummation of some things but someone, and his name is Jesus Christ. It is an affirmation in your mind of a divine decree that God fearfully made you, chose you, saved you, and desires to redeem you. And thus promises to faithfully protect and provide in all aspects of your life. God's blessings are expensive as his glory. And Paul in Philippians 4.19, literally the greatest Old Testament scholar that we've ever been exposed to, says in Philippians 4.19, and my God shall meet all of your needs in Christ Jesus, period. Why? Because God's love and God's blessing and God's mercy and God's forgiveness and God's provision is, is as, as expensive as his glory. They have no end, just a beginning. God is our God. And secondly, God is in control of all things. God is the creator and sustainer of all things, and thus he is in control of all things, which means we can trust God in whatever circumstance. Our future is as secure as our present in Christ. And where God leads, we're to go. Why? Because God just isn't in us or for us. He doesn't just work through us. He isn't just able to do abundantly more. Rather, he is faithfully working through us from now and evermore. God is in control of all things. Thus, worship cannot be then just a one-day thing. Cannot just be a, a Sunday feeling, but rather is a way of life. Worship is living a life with God while loving and living for God. It is a confident expectation of what is to come. A response of your life, of a conviction that you are with God now and forevermore. And that God is preparing you today for a forever relationship with him. 
Thus, the only logical response is to love him by living for him. He is in control. Thirdly, God is greater. God is greater. Now, God's people in Deuteronomy 6 had had been people of bondage for over 400 years. Captivity was all they had ever known. Enslavement was their norm, not freedom. And yet here they are, delivered from literally the, the most heinous ruler that the world had ever seen at the time. Here they are now, marching through a wilderness, stuck in a generation that was unfaithful and wouldn't believe, heading towards promise. Faith would be sight. And it was under a teaching that God is greater. In fact, God's people in Deuteronomy are finding out the same things that you and I find out. That the greatest obstacles in your life take place on the inside of you, not on the outside. And that is why God will command you to love him with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. God is greater than your past. God is greater than your feelings or your shame. God is greater than your dreams that you've accomplished and your dreams that you failed in. God is greater. In fact, the psalmist says in Psalms 86, verse 10, Who in wonder are you, O Lord? For you continually do wonderful and great things. Jesus says it like this in John 16, verse 33. Take heart. Believe in me. For I have overcome the world. God is greater than the storms that are in your life right now. Take heart for in Christ you may be in a storm, but the storm's not in you. For Christ himself reigns. And God is greater. Which finally means that God is enough then. God truly is enough. He is the ultimate sovereign savior and satisfier. And if we're not careful, we'll do the same things that God's people did in the Old Testament. That we'll forget. That we'll begin to trust in ourselves. Well, as the hymnist says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. And thus we must remind ourselves that God is our God. God is in control of all things. God is greater and God is enough. If we're not careful, we'll make idols as a means to bring us happiness and fulfillment. To take God's place in our lives. But I'm here to warn you, idols do not give life. They only take life. And thus we must remind ourselves that God and God alone is enough. You say, well, what, what are some of these idols? Let me give you three to think of as we head into the season. Number one is this. This is an incredible device. This is a, a culmination of the image of God through intellect and ingenuity, collaboration and teamwork. There's 
There's more technology in this device than what literally we used to propel us to the moon in the 1960s. Yet this device can consume you. And this device, instead of a place of wonder and a means to bring blessing for God, can literally be the thing that takes you away from God. In fact, did you realize that the average American spends five hours and 45 minutes a day on a cell phone? The average American accesses their phone 58 times a day. 58 times. I mean, just imagine if you did half of that with the Bible, how your life would change. I mean, if you came to the Word of God over 25 times a day, wouldn't your life be better? Wouldn't you make wiser decisions? Wouldn't your life be more blessed? Our kids and grandkids. Did you realize that the the average teenager in America spends almost eight hours a day on social media? Eight hours a day. Some millennials in our country, it's up to 10 to 11 hours a day. If we're not careful, this can be an idol. Instead of a, a, a sign, another glimpse, and a gift of God's goodness towards us, it could be the very thing that keeps us from it. We've got to watch it. It could be an idol. How about this? And this is a piggy bank. Okay? It's a symbol of your hard work and dedication. and Biblically, God honors that. We're to work, work, work for the Lord. Paul says in Colossians 3.23, work heartily as to the Lord. But if we're not careful, instead of our work being a means of worship, we'll actually begin to worship our work. It'll consume and take over our minds. It'll consume every fabric of our gifting. So what was once meant as a blessing is now this just bitter reminder of our failure. A bitter reminder of it's never enough. A bitter reminder that just I give more and more and more to my life, to this vocation. And it takes and it takes and it takes. What was once a blessing has now become the very thing that is keeping you from being blessed by God. And thus, as we work heartily, men and women of God, students for the Lord... If we're not careful, we'll allow work to replace God himself who's at work. Nowhere in the scriptures are you commanded to be a superman or superwoman for God. But rather just a faithful man and faithful woman of God. And I can tell you unequivocally, If your work is taking you away from God, if your work is crippling your ability to raise your children and grandchildren and be a blessing and helpmate to your spouse, you have every reason to assess if this work has become a gift or an idol that keeps you from God. Guard and watch your life. For we are to love God as a way of life, not our work. Finally, we have these things. Summer's coming. It's already springtime in Oklahoma, which means it's soccer season and baseball season and flag football and everything else good and wonderful. But if we're not careful, maybe God may be a priority. And so instead of protecting what truly matters in life, 
Instead of devoting our families to the Lord and using our gifts and our talents to point people to the Lord, these things may actually keep us from doing that. And so we just give week by week, weekend by weekend in the summer. And before you know it, we not only check out, we head out. And we wonder why our kids, when they graduate from high school and they go to college and they don't desire to gather with God's people. It's because we've unintentionally, for the most part, told them to prioritize other things that God doesn't promise necessarily to bless. These are great things. These are good things. But great and good things can keep you from God things. So be wise. Remind your babies and your grandbabies that yes, you're fearfully and wonderfully made and given amazing gifts, but those gifts are meant to glorify God and to point people to God. And the moment we start pointing more people to us, look out, warning, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He's the one. And you are to love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might as a way of life. In fact, look at verse 5. We have a command to hear in verse 4. In verse 5, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Moses moves from an affirmation to the oneness of God in verse 4 to now a commitment of wholeness for God's people in verse 5. He explains what an exclusive allegiance to God looks like by commanding God's people to obey and to be loyal to God. How? By committing totally to loving God with all their capacity. This isn't just something that is a part of your life. This is your life, Moses says. This is who you are in light of who God is. Love God as the way of life. And that is why now you see why Jesus, in Mark chapter 12, verses 29 through 30, says that Deuteronomy 6, 5 is the most important commandment in all the Old Testament. All of this content, 39 books, literally can be summarized by this verse, by this way of life. Don't miss it, church. Love God as the way of life. You see, the ancient world was filled with people who feared God, who would never love God, just tried their best to appease them. And that is why Moses tells them in verse 4, Hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he's the one. He's not like the gods that are coming. He's not like the Canaanites and the Ammonites. He is the one true God. And he desires you to love him. In fact, you were made to love God. And he will give you a mind and the ability to think and gifts blessing so you can love him more and more as the way of life. Love the Lord your God is commanded ten separate times then in the book of Deuteronomy alone. 
It's from a Hebrew word, love, to love with endearment, to demonstrate by action. It refers not to an emotion or feeling or pleasant disposition, but rather a devoted action that seeks to please God more than yourself. This is to be the way of life. You are to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Why? Because you pursue what you love. That's why. You pursue what you love. For what you love has you. That's why. And that is why you are to love God truly when you obey him fully. Remember what Jesus says in John 14, verse 15? If you love me, keep my commandments. Now think about this. Isn't it amazing that the chief commandment of God isn't thou shall not do something. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do that. In fact, some of you, the greatest advice you've ever been given by someone that you love or trust was probably just that, right? Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't smoke or chew or date girls that do, right? It's actually good advice. But anyway. Notice this is the complete opposite of the will of God for your life. God says, look, no, the greatest commandment, the way of life, isn't you not doing something, but rather you loving someone. Do this. Devote your life and your talents and your children and your grandchildren and all of those around you to this one thing. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might as a way of life. Now, isn't this incredibly selfish of God? I mean, besides your dog, can you ever command anyone in your life to love you with all your heart, soul, and might? And it ever go well? Why in the world would God command you to do this? Well, let me ask you an even better question. Why do you love? Why? Why do you love someone? Why do you love something? What is it that you expect to receive from the person you love or from the things you love? I'll tell you why. It's because you expect happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction and peace. And that is why you love people and things. Think about it. Why do you love the things you do? Why? Because they bring me happiness. Even if it's temporary. I love this. Why? Well, because I'm happy when I do it. Why do you keep doing this? Because I'm fulfilled when I do it. Why do you keep loving someone? Because they bring me satisfaction and peace in my life. Now, all of those things are finite, which means by nature, all of those things are temporary. So God, knowing that, because he is God, commands you to, with all of your might, all of your soul and with all of your heart to love an infinite God that has no beginning or end 
He is the one true God. God knows you get what you love. You will reap what you love. And what you love has you. So God, knowing that, tells you that the greatest pursuit of your life is to love him and pursue him. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things shall be added unto you. Why? Because you will get what you love. You will pursue what you love. Because what you love has you. And you will continually give your life to things that bring you happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction and peace. Even if it's temporary. Because they're the only things in your life that does that. And God, the creator of all things, knows that your lasting fulfillment and the very means of your pursuit is to drive you to an ultimate conclusion. That there is nothing that I can find that can bring me happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction and peace. And so God says, choose me, love me, and have lasting happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction and peace. Which means in choosing God, you are by nature not choosing yourself. Your way and what you think's best. You want to know why? Because love is by nature sacrificial. Love is by nature a choice to find the ultimate end, not in us, but in God, who graciously gives us the very thing we've been desiring and needed the most. Moses magnifies the intensity of his command with now a triad of ways to express how we are to wholeheartedly love God. He says, first with your heart. He speaks here of a total commitment. This word heart is not just an Old Testament word, but it's mentioned 900 separate times in the Bible. It speaks of one's innermost core. It is who you really are. Specifically, it's your will and your intention. It's where you do your thinking. You see, think about this. You think in your heart, and your heart molds your character, and your character empowers your choices, and your choices set the path for your life. And so that is why God says, even from the beginning, when you were making your decisions and your mind, you were to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Truly loving God on the inside will be fully evident on the outside. Loving God in the Old Testament was to choose Him, to serve Him, to be loyal to Him above all things. You see, your choices reveal who's in control. And you love the Lord with all your heart when you choose to depend upon the Word of God. So in any circumstance, your first reaction to be, what does God's Word say? What does the Word of the Lord say? You choose to depend upon the Scriptures, not your ingenuity or not your 
experience or not your network, but first and foremost, the Word of God. You then remember God's character. It is God and God alone who is God. It is God who's in control of all things. It is God who's greater. It's God's who enough. It's God who still loves me because he is God. You then recall God's faithfulness. God, I wasn't expecting this phone call. Lord, I wasn't expecting this news or this conversation. But you've been faithful in the past. And I believe by faith that you're going to be faithful to me right now. And thus you love the Lord your God with all your heart as a way of life. You then, you love him with all your soul. Moses goes from a total commitment to now the total you. It speaks here of an entire person. God desires you to love him with your emotions and your longings and the characteristics that make you unique as you. We are to display our love for God with our entire being. God wants you to love him with all that you are. You say, but what does that look like? Well, hey, students, you're going to get this in a week. It's, it's that feeling that you get spring breaks in a week. Yes! God says, I want that type of love. It's that feeling that you get when you're about to graduate high school or college, some of you in this room. You're free people here in two months. Yes! God says, I want that type of love. It's that feeling when you walk into your kitchen, you're like, it's bacon! God says, I want that type of love. Grandparents, it's the feeling you're going to get in a week when you're like, the grandkids are here! It's that feeling when you get to the end of the week, you're going to say, the grandkids are leaving! God says, I want that type of love. It's the same feeling that you get when your favorite team scores a touchdown, when your son or grandson or granddaughter hits a home run, scores a goal! God says, I want that love for me. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. John Piper is right when he says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And if you want your life filled with God's favor, you must fix your life on God's Savior. So I would, once a day, just have a time when you're praising Jesus. I mean, when was the last time that you got alone with the king? And just said, I love you. I love you. You've been faithful to me. And you love me. And I love you. And I need you. And I desire to follow you. Help me follow you and allow others to do the same as a way of life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Last one, with all your might. Moses goes from a total commitment in the heart to your total self with your soul to now everything God has given you in totality. Pointedly here, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and with all of your very much In fact, the earliest Jewish translations translated this substance or possessions. The interesting thing is is that it's almost always used in an adverb in the Hebrew, 248 separate times. 
It's only used as a noun twice in the entire Bible in the Old Testament. Here and in 2 Kings 23, verse 25, of King Josiah, who the Lord says was the only king who loved him with all his heart and all his soul and with all his might. The translation here here is possessions, including physical or social or economic resources given by God to serve God. Do your possessions own you or do you own them? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. You see, Jesus says it like this. The greater Moses, in Matthew 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. According to Jesus, you can only have one master. You were made for a king. And his name is Jesus. But tragically, we will choose other things to reign over us. All of humanity will be mastered by someone or something. And these are two radically different masters. One commands you to walk by faith, the other by sight. One calls you to be humble, the other one says exalt yourself. One says to set your mind on things above, the other to set your mind on you. One says you must die to live. The other one says, live it up before you die. The choice is yours. This is why both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, what we do with our possessions is so important to the Lord because we will align our entire lives to be obtained and controlled by one master or the other. And thus our possessions and our resources cannot be managed until they have been mastered. And Jesus, just as Moses, proclaims that unless we submit ourselves wholeheartedly in a life given to God in every area of our life, specifically our money and our possessions, we cannot claim to serve God at all. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The greatest challenge in giving is not managing your finances or possessions, but your faith. And that is why Jesus says in Luke 14, verse 28, that you and I, if we're truly going to build something, a life that matters and a life that endures... We must first count the cost. Have you counted the cost this morning? If you were to evaluate your life, your days, your thoughts, and your passions, are they in alignment to some things or someone? Are you seeking happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction in peace, in things, 
Or are you seeking that in God? You see, if you were to pursue a life in pursuit of things, that has a clear beginning and an end. It'll end when you leave this earth. But if you will seek peace and happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction in God, God has no ending, just a beginning. Are you ready to begin? As you walk out of here and do life, are you living in such a way that all of your life is consumed, not by something, but someone? Love God as the way of life.